you know, there's a few people in life. You go through life and, and, and you, you meet people and you cross paths, whatever. But sometimes you just connect. You just connect. And back in um, early 90s-ish, uh, Bobby DeLancelotti and I ended up on staff together at the Anaheim Vineyard. And it was one of those things where I just connected. Just like, like minds, like hearts, like senses of humor, I think goofy. But uh, Bobby just has a compassionate heart. He loves the Lord, and he loves people, and he loves uh, really just giving everything he has to serving those that are in need in the world. And so we've stayed connected over the years, and uh, Bobby's doing some different things with an organization, a ministry called Life Water now, but he'll tell you about that. But I'm just blessed and excited to have him here with us today. Dear, dear friend, I just remember, I always think of Bobby and I walking up and down the Santa Ana Riverbed Trail there, just praying together, uh, hours at a time, just walking up and down, praying for our city and different things. So amazing, amazing heart. Bobby, come and share. Bobby D. That's a tough introduction there to follow, but... Yeah, Glenn, it's interesting because we had, uh, I came from a little small town called Cambria where I got converted. I was a hippie living out in the woods. Actually, I was 26, and, and I, um, I was. I was living in a teepee, actually, on a farm on 25 acres, and I had a 51 Chevy uh, flatbed pickup truck and my surfboard and dog in the back, and literally one day, uh, Jesus showed up in the front seat of my truck, and I had a life-changing experience, and I've kind of never been the same, so that's how I got converted, and so... By the time I was 30, you know, about four and a half years, about four years into the Lord, um, we had a group of people in the small community of Cambria, which is about 5,000 people, uh, right below Big Sur, um, guys that I knew from surfing or from dealing drugs with or whatever, just people got saved, people, you know, got healed. It was crazy. You know, we like pray for a refrigerator and turn on, you know, if it was broken, your car. It was just a crazy time. And anyway, so... We started that church in Cambria, and I was, I was there for 10 years, and um, they probably would never let me in the vineyard now, a guy like me, you know, I got in under the wire, you know, before you had to have education, and Glenn and I both didn't have to do that, but obviously, hopefully, God knew what he was doing, so it was cool. And uh, yeah, and so we had this crazy thing from the beginning. I always said, God, uh, i just crazy enough to believe you. I mean, there's an old phrase that says, we're loose changing God's pocket. He can spend us any way he wants to, so he said... God, you know, I'll go wherever you go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And so we loved the Central Coast. I left Southern California um, because it was way too crowded and smoggy back in the 70s. And so we ended up, God spoke to us about going back, going and being on staff at Anaheim Vineyard. And we kind of laughed and said, we're never going back to Orange County. It's crazy. And uh, six months later, there we were. We were, when we moved from a little Cambria, California, 4,000 people to scenic Yorba Linda. So that was a real uh, culture shock. But it was great meeting Glenn and getting involved, and I got to travel and, and do amazing things. And, uh, and since that time, we took another church to Woody La Harbor Vineyard, and then I've been on staff at the San Luis Obispo Vineyard, which is called Mountain Brook Community Church. So 31 years, I've been a pastor in the Vineyard Movement, and... Um, very interesting thing happened to me. I was on my 60th birthday. I, I just turned 63 a while ago. I was walking on the beach, and uh, I probably have like three or four seminal moments in my life where I knew the Lord spoke to me. I wouldn't hear an audible voice, but I knew it was the Lord. And uh, he spoke to me, and he said, because uh, he's kind of put this thing in my heart, never to settle for the status quo. I was kind of, I was kind of sometimes I feel like I'm kind of like a rebel without a clue. I'm kind of pushing things, and Anyway, so I was praying. I said, God, there's got to be more. I know you've got more for me to do. I was in a really good church, had a good position. I was getting paid well, all that kind of stuff. And the Lord spoke to me through, actually through my high school football coach, his voices, which was crazy. 
And he said, Bobby, suck it up. Fourth quarter, Monarchs. And I went to a Catholic high school called Modern Day, a large parochial high school, played football. And uh, they, nobody could beat us in the fourth quarter. I knew the fourth quarter is always going to be the best quarter of my life. So I knew right away that there's a re- something, there's change coming in. And within a year, I resigned my position. My wife was a children's director at the church, uh, and she resigned her position. And I am now the, uh, I'm the church mobilizer and lead advocate at Life Water International, which is a nonprofit water development organization dedicated to serving the, the world's poorest poor. And so what LifeWater does, we do sanitation training, hygiene training, and do wells and water points for the uh, unreached, underserved places in the world. So, uh, and I get to go talk about God's heart for the poor and talk about issues of justice and, and, and kind of raise awareness of, of the water crisis that's going on right now. And now it's, I know it sounds, it's, this is so funny because, okay, where we live on the central coast, our, all our water is dependent on, on creeks or on uh, ponds and things like that. And, what's that? I, on, yeah, well, here's the deal. So I, I got to my brother's house. I have two of my brothers live here. And um, yesterday I said, um, I, said I think I'm gonna, I probably should take a shower. But I, you know, I've already taken one this week. And he goes, what? Because I only take like, because we're on water rationing where we are. You know, here I am in Oregon. And she, they said, you can take like a guilt-free shower. Take like a 20-minute shower and go, no, 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 no. I can never. That's like a waste of water, you know. So anyway, it's great to be in Oregon. And um, <laughs> we did a, uh, yesterday we did a widen water event. And my brother has a winery in Newburgh called the Lancelotti Family Vineyards. And uh, so they have a house there. So they hosted a, an event. And uh, it was great. Matt got to come and Jordan. And we had a really good time. And and so I called Glenn before Glenn and I and stayed in touch. And so that's how we got to be uh, kind of what we're doing. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. And I, I just thank you so much for worship. Um, you know, one of the beautiful things about the vineyard, vineyard, you know, is just part of one of parts, one of one tribe of God's beautiful church. And one thing we learned as pastors early on that God loves the whole church. And we're going to love everything that Jesus loves. So I have a great affinity and love for the church no matter what. You know, he told us, hey, you need to love everything from the smells and the bells, which is my background in Catholic, to everybody swinging on the chandelier and everything in between, you know? And, that, and so that's, that's what it is. So I have this great, and on Sundays I get to go, I'm at, go at Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, Lutheran churches, uh, Catholic churches. I've spoken at, you know, all sorts of different places. And, um, but it's so good to be home, you know? It's like, oh, man, I just love to worship so much, you know? And uh, that was some of the songs and, you know, God being so good and the word that you had really spoke to me. And, and it just, it was so good for me to hear and to reinforce and to just go, yes, God, and just to, just to get back on track and for me and for my life. And, and so I, I was praying about what I should share this morning. And actually, I'm not going to share about, you know, justice to the poor. I'm going to talk a little bit about what we do, a little bit of my message. But I want to talk about love as a lifestyle. Because, you know, we talk about love, and, and Glenn mentioned love and how important it is to not only receive the love of the Father and know the love of the Father, but it's not enough just to know it and to receive it. But we want to give it away too, right? I mean, we learned early on that whatever you get, give it away as fast as you get it. You know, and that's how you get more. And so you give to get to give, to get, to give. It's cyclical. You don't just give to get, 
but you give to get so you can give some more. And, and this whole thing of experiencing and knowing the Father's love is we want to know the Father's love. We want to, you know, we want to know it intellectually, but want to, we want to experience it. And as we experience it, we don't keep it for ourselves, but we let, you know, our love and our light shine by the way that we treat people, by the way that we love our neighbor, the way that we, we show up on time at work, the way that we're kind to our children, the way that, you know, this, this love that, that God has imparted and put into our hearts and he continually wants to keep pouring into us is this, this, this great stream of love. You know, I think about that verse, I think it's in Romans 5.5 5 that says um, that hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and it's continually being poured out. So I think of it like this, like rain in Oregon, man. It just keeps coming down. So we need to get out in, the, in that waterfall of love, receive his love and then take that love and give it away and start doing something. You know, start doing, you know, Mother Teresa has a great quote. She said, there's, there's many, many people in the world that want to do big things for God. And they want to write that big check or do this big thing or get, but she said, there's very, very few people in the world that want to do small things for God. She said, therefore, you know, small things done with great love is what changes the world. So we all been called to take the love that God's given us and that seed that we have and just give it away and God will bless it and, you know, give us back to more. So I want to talk about this morning, what does love look like and how can you and I live a life of love? What, not only what does it look like, but how can we live it out on a really daily, super practical way that we can live out a life of love? I have a great quote from St. Augustine that I love, who's a third century church father who I really love reading his stuff. He has this great quote. This is what he says. He says, what does love look like? Great question, right? He says, what does love look like? It has hands to help others. It has feet to hasten to the poor and to the needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear the sighs and the sorrows of others. That's what love looks like. And as I was reading that and thinking about, you know, that's not only what love looks like, but guess what? That's what Jesus looks like, right? And, And folks, that's what you and I have been called to. So we've been called to be imitators of God. You know, as, and I love that verse in, in, um, in Ephesians 5, 1, where Paul says, you know, therefore be imitators of God as much loved children and live a life of love. How? Just as he loved us and gave himself up for us as a, as a sacrifice unto God, you know, as, as this fragrant offering to God. So you and I have been called to be imitators of God. And the word imitator just simply means to mimic. That means, you know, what Jesus did, we're to do. Who Jesus loved, we're to love. How Jesus cared, we're to care. You know, how Jesus was a, a open and, and inclusive and a good listener, that's what he's called us to be. So he's, we've called to be, you and I have been called to be imitators of God. That's what love looks like. Someone told me a while ago, he said, the Christian life is a call to live as Jesus lived and to love what Jesus loved and to treasure what Jesus treasures. And I tell you what Jesus treasures and loves more than anything, and that's others. Your neighbor, the people that you work with, you know, the people that drive you crazy that you'd rather not, those kind of people, right? So oftentimes to you guys, and I know you know this in the church, that it's so much easier to build a wall than it is to build a bridge, right? I mean, we build these walls and we get behind these walls and we take these theological rocks and we go, well, you're liberal or you're conservative or you're this or you're gay or you're whatever it means. And, and it's, but that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to break down the wall and he's called us to be a bridge and just literally get in the water with people and to literally be incarnation and live life alongside those kind of people. And that's what God's called us to and that's what love looks like. And I think sometimes when we read the words of Jesus, 
I think, I, I know for me, sometimes I catch myself looking for loopholes, you know, kind of a, kind of maybe just kind of talking down, maybe that's not what they really meant, or maybe, you know, that was the first century, they weren't, you know, quite as involved, you know, as evolved as we are, whatever. And Jesus made some incredible hard statements, didn't he? He made some, you know, love your enemies. You know, pray for those who persecute you. If you want to follow me, you know, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow after me. I mean, I, I would encourage you and challenge you to take the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and just take a, you know, take a month and just, you know, meditate on them, chew on them. Let, let the words of Jesus go deeply into your heart and realize that Jesus said some really difficult things. But I think personally, one of the most difficult things Jesus said, at least for me, is this verse in John 13, verse 34, and I'll read it to you. He said this, he said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, if Jesus had just said, you know, a new commandment to give you, love one another, we probably would try to water it down, right? But he makes, but that phrase, you know, love one another, how? As I have loved you, makes it incredibly clear what he meant by that. Our standard, the way that we're to love, the way that we're to, not only to talk about love, but to demonstrate the love, is the same way Jesus demonstrated his love for you and I. See, our standard is Jesus' love for us, and so we have to ask ourselves a question, well, what was Jesus' love like? Well, it was sacrificial. It was generous. It was otherly. It was extravagant. You know, it was a love with no strings attached. It was a love that was marked by giving, not by getting. Would to God if, and I, that's why, you know, when I've looked on your website or I've, I've, I've called Glenn or sometimes I'll listen, I'll sneak and listen to a message or, you know, I love all the different things that you guys are doing, whether it's, you know, the homeless thing or, or feeding people or, or the wonderful, the going to Nicaragua. I just think that there's this ethos, there's this culture and atmosphere of love and sacrifice and giving here. And I just want to encourage you guys in that, that man, um, so oftentimes in the church, we get caught up in um, what we used to call church growth through the three B's. Buildings, budgets, and butts, you know, and, the, and butts, and, you know, and, that, and that's how, that was our matrix for success. Boy, and, and you go to a pastor's conference, right, Glenn? They go, hey, how you doing, buddy? Hey, nice to see you. Hey, how many of you got in your church? And I go, you know, that used to be like the, and you know, I think that's the wrong matrix for success. The, our matrix for success would be, how are we involved in the community? Did this, if this church never existed, would the, would the city of Tigert know that you were gone? I think that's a good model for knowing whether, whether you're really making, you know, an impact or not. But that's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. And then he goes on to say this. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so you must love another. And he says, by this, all men will know that you're my followers, my disciples. How? If you love one another. So the primary way that, and the primary means and measurement Jesus uses for being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is the way that we love extravagantly and, and, you know, and generously. And folks, I think below my heart that God is serious about the way we love one another. He cares about us. He loves us and he expects us to take the love that he's given us and to share it with others. It's what sets us apart as followers of Jesus. It's what distinguishes us. It's what makes us different. I'm sure you guys know this, but just think about this. It's not what you believe that makes you different. Okay, here comes a, Bob, what are you going to say here? You're going to throw a theological rock at me? No, it's not what we believe that makes us different. It's what we do about what we believe that makes us different. There's a lot of people that believe a lot of good stuff, but that's, that's only one thing. We need to put it into practice. 
And that's why love is a lifestyle, what it's all about. So it's not just what we believe. We believe things, but unless we're taking it, practically implementing it, you know, day by day, step by step, stone by stone, building the house, you know, building that, that place, that, that dwelling place of God in our lives and being an instrument of his love and demonstrating that love in very practical ways. What's the run on rake, whatever the thing you're doing? And I, I love that idea, taking rakes and going and raking leaves. I mean, there's a lot of leaves here, right? Man, I mean, what a great way to show God's love in a practical way, you know? I'll tell you, you know, I tell, I've told you I had God speak to me in about three, four seminal times. About six years ago, God spoke, had another one of those times, and I was praying about, uh, Lord, I was just asking God to expand my heart and do all these things, you know? And here's what God told me, and it's, I heard his voice, and he said this. He said um, two things. Is number one, I'm going to teach you what it means to love without an agenda. I said, Lord, I don't have an agenda. I probably go, Oh, yeah, you do, man. <laughs> Believe me. And and, uh, and then he said, the next thing you know, Bob, you need to do, and, and this is going to be really hard. But he says, I want you to die to the need to be right all the time. I said, But Lord, I, I am right, you know. <laughs> He said, that's what I'm talking about, you know, a kind of thing like that. So God's been working on me to love extravagantly. You know, the last church in, in, in San Luis, what we started doing, instead of like doing our own kind of outreach things, we went along and we found all the, I went and met with the mayor and said, how can we serve the city? And so we went, we met with different nonprofits and we came alongside and just served people and just went alongside and, and built bridges of friendship and relationship. And we had more incredible things happen out of that than any of the great outreaches that we had kind of planned on going on. So it's just a matter of expressing that love and demonstrating that love. And I believe with all my heart this, and I think that people in churches that are fueled by love, empowered by love, have the greatest impact. Remember, I love that verse in 2 Corinthians 5.14 where the Apostle Paul says, for the love of Christ constrains me, or when some translation says compels me. You know, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now listen, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Would to God that we would be constrained by the love of God, motivated by the love of God. And I think that begs you and I to ask the question, what motivates us? What compels us? What, what gets us up in the morning? What fires our rockets? What, you know, what, what really is that drives us? You know, would to God it would be his love each and every day. Mother Teresa has a great quote. She said, those who see us must see the love of Jesus. The God we are to reveal is the God who first revealed himself as love. It is love that must direct every decision and every action. Isn't that good? Man, my mama T, man, she was right on. So how do we measure love? What, what is not only what does it look like, but how can we measure it? So if you have your Bibles or your electric devices or however that works, or, uh, or I'll just read it, no worries. I'm gonna, in 1 John chapter 3, I'm going to read just a couple of verses for you. This may be a text that you're familiar with. It's 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And so how do we know what love looks like? And, and John answers this for us. He said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees, now that's a key word, sees, and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Good question. And then he goes on to say, dear children, let us not love with words or in tongue, but in action and in truth. Is that hot? 
I love that, that portion of scripture. Now, here's something. Just listen to this when I, when I mention this. Just try to follow me. I believe this. The difference you and I make will be determined by how much we love, and how much we love is determined by how much we do. Let me say that again. The difference we make will be determined by how much we love, and how much we love is determined by how much we do. Why? Because love is something you do. Love is an action. Love is a verb. Love is never neutral. Love is never passive. Love never sits on the sideline. Love is always engaged. Love always has feet. Love is always is, is moving, is doing, is accomplishing something. So you just can't say, oh yeah, you know, we love, you know, but show me your love. What does your love look like? How do we demonstrate that love? So I want to try to talk to you a little bit about today is how can we learn to love like Jesus and, and how can we do what he's done? And so in verse 17, you know, I love what it says. It says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need or a sister in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? I think one of the first things that God wants us to do is he wants us to be in opening our eyes. What Jesus, I think, is is saying through the apostle John is real simple. Love does not close its eyes to the needs of others. Remember that. Love will never close its eyes to the needs of others. And we can't close our eyes to the needs of those all around us, both locally and globally. You know, one of the things that uh, we tried to talk about the last church I was at, we said our mantra was, what we want to do, we want to love our neighbor, we want to serve our city, and we want to change our world. You know, so we wanted to have like a, a local a kind of a global, a national, and as well as a global impact into our community. And so love doesn't close its eyes to the needs of others. You know, I was mentioning earlier that the organization I work for is LifeWater. And the, the reason that I love, I, I, we had partnered with them for several years, and I've gone on some trips with them. That's why I know the work that they do. And they, they go amongst the poorest of the poor, and they serve the rural poor, the underserved, the unreached poor in places that you and I have never been to or heard of before. But here, just let me give you a couple of statistics just to kind of open your eyes to get you aware of what's happening globally. You know, currently today, about 664 million people don't have access to safe water or clean water. So that's one in nine people on the planet don't have access to clean and safe water. Think about that. Here's another one. 2.5 billion people, that's with a B, don't have access to a toilet or latrine. So that's one in three people in the world don't have access to a toilet or a latrine. And so what's the number one cause? You know what the number one killer of children in, in, in Africa is? And in, in, uh, is, well, number one's pneumonia, but right behind it is chronic diarrhea and then cholera. It's all waterborne diseases, things that are totally preventable. And so, of course, if there's, if there's inadequate sanitation, 2.5 billion don't have a toilet, you know, if, and there's diarrhea, and, you know, feces everywhere, germs spread, right? No wonder children are dying. And here's the one that grips me, and this is the one that broke my heart and, and really was a, helped me to kind of flip my, my worldview and, and kind of take a, follow the downward mobility of Jesus and uh, follow his, his call to do this, is that 1,600 children die each and every day from preventable waterborne diseases. Think about that. 1,600 children a day. That's one child every 60 seconds. That's the equivalent of four 747s loaded with kids crashing into the earth every day, and we know how to keep the plane from crashing. 
That's why it's a crisis. And you say, well, Bobby, how come we don't hear about all these children dying? How come we don't hear about all these people being affected? Because it's happening in unreached and underserved places. It's happening in Southeast Asia. It's happening in Central America and South America. In Nicaragua, it's happening. It's happening, obviously, in the continent of Africa, in India, in the sub-Saharan. There's, there's people that are in need. And the beautiful thing about Life Water does is that we, we are, are followers of Jesus. And what we do is we have this beautiful curriculum called WASH, Water Access, Sanitation, Hygiene. And the story of Jesus is kind of woven into the curriculum. And of course, the vast majority of the people that we minister to are um, illiterate. And so it's all in story form. It's not like John 3.16, but we talk about as they learn to wash their hands, they learn how Jesus will wash your heart. And so it's just, you know, very simple, but very profound and very effective. And so we literally have field staff that embed in the villages for two to three years. And so they're there every day helping the people, teach them, you know, how to do, build a hand washing device or teach them how to make soap or teach them how to build a latrina. And we make, we don't do anything for people they can't do for themselves. We want to empower people, not enable people. Because I know if you guys believe like we do, and I'm sure you do, that every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, every human being has inherent worth and value. And so we must give our lives for those that, you know, be a voice for the voiceless. And so those are some of the voiceless ones, the people that we serve. But gang, here's the deal. If our eyes are closed, we'll miss the, the most marginalized, the most vulnerable ones, even the ones closest by us. You know, somebody told me a year ago, or years ago, and I kind of thought, well, that's kind of funky, but I realized it's really true. You and I can both see something and look at the same thing and not see the, the same exact thing at all. It's like, you know, when Joshua went into the promised land, right? It's like, Joshua and Caleb, what did they saw? Hey, man, land full of milk and honey, man. Let's take the land. This is awesome. Let's go for it. What did the other guys see? Dudes, giants. And they, they all saw the same thing, right? But one saw it through eyes of faith and eyes of love. The other saw it through eyes of, eyes of fear or just eyes of um, whatever. You know, it was like, wow, it, it was difficult. So we can both look at the same thing and not even see the same thing. So we need to pray and we can pray today that God would open up our eyes. To, and, and, you know, we need to start before you go to Africa and, you know, and do something. We need to open up our eyes in our neighborhoods. We need to open up our eyes in our workplace. We need to open up our eyes in our city here and, and demonstrate that practical love of Jesus. So love requires, gang, that we open our eyes. And a real classic example of, of this love opening our eyes and why it's such an important requirement is found in a, in a beautiful parable that Jesus spoke of that we're all super familiar with, but the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I don't know if you've got your, um, your B-I-B-L-E's with you, but I'll read it. If not, if you have it, it's in Luke chapter 11. And um, Jesus is teaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan. I just want to give you some just some basic things we can learn from the parable that will help us to have our eyes open so we can see others. In verse 25, it's in, and uh, oh, this is, um, I'm sorry, it's Luke 10, not Luke 11, forgive me. It says, um, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he, sat, he asked, what must I do to, to, you know, to in, uh, inherit eternal life? Good question, right? So what does Jesus do? Instead of giving an answer, he answers his question with a question. I love that. He says, well, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And this guy gives a great answer. He says this. He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. What did Jesus say? He said, way to go. He says, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. 
Now, the guy, if he was smart, he probably would have stopped right there, right? But he didn't. (laughs) But it says he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, I think... um, like, like me, you know, he was probably looking for some loopholes, you know, he's hoping Jesus would say, well, your neighbor's the one that looks like you or votes like you or goes to the temple with you or, you know, is the same tribe that you are or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. Only people of your same race, religion or some things like that. Only people of your own nationality. So what I want to do is I want to just give you a couple of thoughts on what it's like to love our neighbor. What does it really look like and how can we put that into practice in our lives? So first of all, a lack of love is super easy to justify. Let me say it again. A lack of love on our part is super easy to justify. I'll read verses 30 through 32. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, remember Think about seeing. He saw the man. He passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, and he passed on the other side. You see, guys, a lack of love is super easy to justify, isn't it? You know, for the religious professionals, a wounded man was a problem, was an inconvenience, was, you know, someone to be avoided. You know, the priest and the Levite were religious, but didn't walk the walk, their eyes weren't really open and they, didn't have, they had their own blinders on. Now, the reason I can really relate to this, I know that a lack of love is easy to justify because I've done the same thing so many times. Haven't you guys done that? You've seen someone or, or you saw someone at work, you knew they were hurting, you knew you were supposed to pray for them or, or maybe you saw somebody that needed food and you know, God, if I, I probably should just stop and maybe get this guy. You know, a lack of love is super easy to justify sometimes. Now, we can't do everything But guess what? Doing nothing is no longer an option because God wants us to be a people to live this life of love. So a lack of love is super easy to justify. I think the second thing we should, uh, second thought I had in this is simply this. Our neighbor is really anybody that we have the opportunity to help. Our neighbor is anyone we have the opportunity to help. Verse 33 says this. But a Samaritan, as he traveled came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And that literally means his heart went out to him. And so you got to get a little bit of a cultural background to really get the real full impact of what Jesus is doing here. Samaritans and Jews weren't best of friends. If you know that the apostles even avoided going around Samaria because some Jews thought Samaritans were half-breeds. Uh, and Samaritans hated Jews, and so there's tremendous enmity between them. So here Jesus is giving this parable about, hey, a, a priest, you know, somebody of our own race or religion, nationality, they, they shined him on. They went on the other side of the street, but a Samaritan was going by, and what did he do? He stopped to help him. So our neighbor really is anyone we have the opportunity to help. Listen, any race, any creed, See, love sees another human being not as black or white, not as Jew or Christian or Muslim or, you know, fill in the blank, not as a liberal or conservative, not as gay or straight. Love sees another human being created in the image and likeness of God. And so we've got to come to grab grips with that, you guys. Sometimes we do it as an agenda or we, do, you know, or we, or we build these walls against other, other religions, other, other things. And no, God wants us to love those people too. 
So our, our neighbor is anyone we have the opportunity to love. I love the way the message translates, translates that. It says, when he saw him, his heart went out to meet him. And a funny thing about all three people, all three people saw the same thing, but only one responded in love. So our neighbor is anyone we have the opportunity to help. And the third thing, it's pretty simple, but love means acting to meet the need. In other words, love means doing something. Look at verse 34 and 35. So the Samaritan went to him and he bandaged his wounds and he poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he, and he took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, uh, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after them, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you with any extra expense you may have. Remember, love is something you do. Love is an action. And I believe the Samaritan's response was a, a spontaneous response of love and compassion. He just did what he could do, right? Remember, love does not close its eyes to the needs of others. You know, the Apostle James put it so bluntly where he said, suppose her brother or sister was out clothing or without food, and if one of you says to them, hey, go, I wish you will, God bless you, man, you know, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Pretty simple, right? I mean, James is pretty stinking blunt. He just says, hey, it's, I'm glad you got great doctrine, great faith, but it's what your faith into action. It's love is an action. Love is a verb. Remember I said it's never passive. It's never neutral. It never stands on the sideline. Love is always engaged. Love is always involved at some level. And that's what God is calling the church to. And the punchline is simply this. Look at verses 36 and 37. Jesus said to him, which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the guy said, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, good, go and do likewise. See, mercy, folks, listen, mercy is love in action. There's a big difference between mercy and grace. Grace is, is, getting, is getting something, how's that go? Is, uh, is getting something we didn't deserve. Mercy is not getting something we do deserve. And so we call to be a merciful people. Remember, mercy demonstrates the heart of God. I love what Micah 6, 8 said. You know, you've shown me, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And we've got the great commandment. We have the great commission. But this is the great requirement. And I believe this is every bit as important as the commandment and the commission. Is this great requirement to be those that do justly. And that's what the whole issue of justice is. is justice is making wrong things right. You know, the other day, one of the things that they've challenged me at LifeWater to do is they, they said, my CEO, everybody at the organization is like 35 and under. And I'm 63. So, you know, there's 20 people that work there. And it's just like... Okay, I mean, they're really cool, but they're really nice, but they, they've been really good to me. But um, our CEO, Justin's 34 years old, and he's a really bright guy, and he said, no, I see in you, he goes, You've got, you need to write. I want you to start writing a blog every week. So I said, I'm not, I mean, I, I think I like to write, but I've never really written. He said, no, just start writing on your favorite topic. So I did about five blogs, and he goes, oh, these are awesome. I want you to do a vlog. And he said, he showed me what a vlog, you know what a vlog is? It's like a pastor sitting here, you know, giving his... Uh, like three to five minutes doing a video where you're just kind of talking, you know? 
And she's, oh man, and I love these vlogs. And so the first one I thought of, and this is, I'm, I'm going to talk about doing justly, is that um, I was thinking about that verse in John 10, 10. You know, that the thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy, but God, get, can you give us life and life more abundantly? And so my first blog, you know what it's called? Jesus hates diarrhea. Diarrhea kills kids. They drink unsafe water and they get sick and they die. Well, I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story. I, we, I, we told, Matt heard it at our thing last night, is that in this area where we just got done serving, we take surveys every six months and we have real-time data to make sure what, our, our programs are working, everything's going well. And, and our CEO, Justin, was back there and he asked us one woman, Esnino, and she had her baby, Christopher, on the back. And he said, Esnino, what's been the greatest difference now that you have health and hope and sanitation now? What's been the greatest change you've seen in, in your life and in the village? And she said, she, she looked at him and she said, we're no longer afraid to name our babies anymore. And he was stunned. He said, because all their dads, the high, the, the rate of children that were passing away because of chronic diarrhea and, and cholera and stuff was so high that they were so heartbroken, they were, it couldn't give names to their babies. He says, no, now we're naming our babies again. <laughs> That's Jesus, man. He cares about those babies. Now he cares about the people in Newburgh and in Tigard and, and, and even in, up in the nice hills where my brother lives and all those places. He cares about those people. But man, he cares about those that, you know, that he sees, he hears. Just like those words say that God is good. He's good to the people in the far off. He's good to those that hear. But he wants us to be awakened as a people, as a church, not to get enamored with buildings and, and programs and things. He, he wants to be a people enamored and demonstrated and marked by and of love and being lovers. This is the call of God for our life. This is who we've been called to do. And this is our mandate. I believe that with all my heart. This is what sets us apart. That's what makes us different. I go now, I go, when people talk to me, well, what do you think about this? I go, I don't really care about those doctrines. I care about, what are we doing about love and, and lifting up Jesus in the kingdom? That's what I want to see and do. Sorry. But that's what, that's what, that's what fires my rockets. So mercy, remember, speaks and acts on behalf of those who lack a voice. So mercy is a voice to the voiceless. It's help for the hopeless. And remember what mercy is too. Mercy is serving Jesus and other people. What do you mean, Bobby, serving Jesus and other people? Well, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25. He says, you know, remember I was, I was naked and you clothed me. I, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I, I, I was naked and you put clothes. I was in prison and you visited me. And they said, well, Lord, when in the world do we do that? And remember, he said, whenever you do to the least of these, you did it to me. When we demonstrate mercy to people, we're doing it to Jesus. When you rake leaves on the 12th, you're, you're doing it to Jesus. And that, if you, we had that attitude, man, we'd be singing that, that worship song, you know, God, you're good. That, that's such a pretty song, man. I love it. I never heard it before. It's awesome. But you have that song going off and you'll be able to do it with a smile and people know there's something distinctly different about you. God wants to teach us to love without an agenda. And he wants us to love until, and one of the things I try to tell people is that, and, is that love, until, love people until they ask why. And then, you can, and then you've got a great opportunity to do that. And you guys have great things that you're doing for that. So how can we learn to love like Jesus? We got to open up our eyes. And God, give me kingdom eyes, God. Help me to see people the way that you see people. Help me, to, Lord, to have see-through eyes of compassion, eyes of love, eyes that believes the best about others and not the worst about others. 
Man, eyes that, you know, that are optimistic. Eyes that are just like, you know, Glenn was saying about the whole political thing, you know, don't get caught up in, 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 in uh, the whole business of empire, man, but build, we are a countercultural movement of revolutionary love. That's what sets the church apart. You know, the church today, we're known more for what we're against than what we're for. And that's a travesty, in my humble opinion. I think it is. I want to know, hey, the church, those are the guys that feed the poor. Those are the guys that love those guys in, South, in Nicaragua. Those are the ones that rake people's leaves. They're weird, but I don't know. I like them. Right? That's what it is. That's what mercy is all about. So we have to open up our eyes. The second thing we have to do, and this is be pretty brief, is that we have to not open up our eyes, but we have to open up our hands. That means we share ourselves. That means living and dying for bigger things. That means living for the sake of others. You know, a good friend of Glenn and, and mine as well, his name's Todd Hunter. Todd is now a bishop in the Anglican Church. And he started a whole church planting movement. And it's beautiful. It's called Church for the Sake of Others. And I love that. He says, we want to be a people that are relational. We exist for, for the sake of those that are outside the church and to serve, the, serve our city and serve our world. And, and so, re, folks, we want to be a people that exist for the sake of others. And we want to be a people that really have this ethos in our heart and our lives. And even the way we plan our future, that we want to live for something bigger than just, you know, our, our retirement or our 401k plan or whatever thing it is, you know. No, man, we want to live for Jesus. Hey, man, there's no greater thing to live for. There's no greater reward. There's no greater satisfaction that you'll ever find in your life than just loving people. And, and there's no, I tell you what, when you give, God will give back, man. And you give, God will just completely meet every one of your needs. And I know that because he's done that in, all, in a lot of our lives. So we share ourselves. Not only that, but you know what we share? We share our time. You know what the greatest gift you can give somebody is the gift of listening. I mean, the, people say time is money, Right? But just to sit down and listen to somebody without an agenda. Have you ever had the opportunity? I mean, this has happened to me. I don't know how many times you sit down and you're trying to pour your heart out and somebody says, well, you know, it says in John 3, 24, you know, I just want somebody, somebody just to listen. And somebody, so many people out there, you know, I, I have four kids, a lot of kids, same age as Glenn's, you know, millennial kids. And, and you know, I, their friends love me because I'll sit down, I'll just listen to them and they'll tell me anything because they know they trust me. And they'll, after a period of time, I have them come to me and they, think, well, they say, well, well, what do you think, Bobby? And that gives me an entree to talk about Jesus. Why? Because I've earned the right, because I've given them the gift of listening. Now that's hard just to, when you say things, you go, right? And as a dad, you're going, you know, as a grandfather, you go, but sometimes you just got to suck it up, you know, and just love people unconditionally. And then that, that gives you an opportunity to share with people. Shall we share ourselves, we share our time, and then we share our resources, our treasure, whenever we have the opportunity. You know, one of the things that um, I learned early on is this, uh, I think a guy named James Riles, he talked about the spirit of poverty or the attitude of poverty, and it's very simple, and it goes like this. The spirit of poverty and attitude of poverty or poverty mentality is uh, the fear of not getting that causes you to hold on tightly to what you have. Doesn't that grip all of us? God, if I give a couple of bucks for the Thanksgiving outreaches, I'm, we're going to have enough for dinner this week. I mean, we all, I'm, we all struggle with those things, to be honest, right? Or if I give my time, am I going to have any time back for myself? If I volunteer, you know, it's that fear of not getting that causes us to hold tightly to what we have. But God has called us to be an open-handed, open-hearted people, extravagant in our love, extravagant in our generosity, the best we can, you know, if we all would just be an open-handed people and God's teaching us, God, everything you've given me is a gift. 
And so everything I freely I've received, now God, I'm, I'm freely offering it back and, and giving it back to you. And so that's the thing we can, we got to open up our eyes, that's good, but then we got to open up our hands. And last but not least, we need to open up our hearts, and that's something we have to do daily. And opening up our hearts means doing something, it means being vulnerable. And I hate being vulnerable. I mean, it's difficult to be vulnerable because you know what happens when you're vulnerable? Sometimes you get hurt. Sometimes you get taken advantage of. Sometimes people say things about you where it's, you know, it's not true. But that's the only way, that's the way that Jesus lived. Bob Pierce, the guy who was a founder of World Vision, you guys heard of Bob Pierce? He has this great quote. And I guarantee this is one of those prayers if you pray it. I mean, there's a couple of prayers God guarantees the answer, right? One is help. The second is have mercy on me. He'll, he'll answer that. The third is, oh, here's a great one. This is, if you pray this, I guarantee you God's going to answer. You go, what is Bobby, like a word of faith guy? No, here it is. It's a good one. He says, Lord, don't let me get away with anything. Who wants to pray that one? Why, that show of hands is really respective. <clears throat> I tell you what, but I say, God, bust me, man, because I know what I'm made of. I know left to myself, God, I'd rip you off. I'd go my own way. I'd get a fat head or whatever. I don't want to be left to myself. That's why it's the poor of spirit to get the kingdom. Those that have a need and know it get the rule and reign of God. The rule and reign of God belongs to the paupers, the ones that are they're needy, the ones that are, that are, that are open, the ones that are vulnerable. Listen to what Bob, uh, Bob Pierce said. He said, Lord, and this is one of those prayers I guarantee he'll answer. He said, Jesus, let my heart be broken by the things that break your heart, O God. What a beautiful prayer. Lord, break my heart with the things that break yours. So being vulnerable starts with opening up our hearts to God. And sometimes that's so difficult. So sometimes we have to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Or Lord, I want to do it, but help the part of me that just struggles in doing it. So help me just to open it a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit more, you know, but just take that first step and allow God to get in there and cultivate and break up, plow up that ground that's in your heart. You know, it's risky, but that's the way that Jesus lived. A friend of mine recently sent me an, an email, and he, he put this little tagline. I really love it underneath. I put it in my office now. He said, Bobby, he said, nothing tells the story of Christ better than when the church lives like Jesus. Is that hot? Nothing tells his story better than the church lives like Jesus. So remember where we started. We're called to be imitators of God. How? As much loved children. And we're to live what? We're to live a life of love. Even as he loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is our call. This is our destiny. This is, this is what we're, we're growing into. I'll give you one more Mother Teresa quote. I love it. She said, the words of Jesus, love one another as I have loved you, but it's not only be a light for us, but a flame that consumes the self in us. Ouch. Love, in, in order to survive, must be nourished by sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of self. So it said every day that, well, that's the same thing Paul says, right? It's like dying daily. It's putting ourselves in the altar and say, Lord, you know, not my will. Let your kingdom come, God. Let your will be done here on earth, God, as it is in heaven. I'm laying my life down, God, for your sake and your sake alone. Help me to live for the sake of others. Help me to see people the way that you see people, God. Help me to love that you love. So where can we start? Again, just by praying, by asking for the Father's heart and asking for eyes to see and for a heart of compassion. And, and the second thing is, I want to talk about one word really quickly, and the word is repent. Now, when we hear this word, I, we, I know 
if I did word association, I say repent, you say, we'd probably say a lot of different things. But you know the word repent, mentanoia, literally means? It, ch- it says change your mind, change the way you see, change the way you perceive. That's what it means, change the way you think. That's what repentance is. Instead of going one way, go the other way. That's what repentance is all about. Change the way you see and think and perceive. It, there's this great verse in Ezekiel 16, 49 that says this. Now, this was a sin of your sister Sodom. Now, we used to think Sodom and Gomorrah is all about like sex, right? And homosexuality, and blah. Listen to what the, what the prophet says, the Lord speaking through Ezekiel. This was a sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, meaning the cities around there, were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and the needy. That's a powerful verse. I wonder if that can be said of the church in the West. Are we unconcerned? Are we overfed? Are we not helping the poor and the needy? And then simply ask, hey, Lord, and this is, I do this with my wife. We do this with our, we've taught our kids to do this. Just ask, Lord, what needs to be done? Like in the morning, Lord, you know, Lord, what do you want me to do today? What, what is happening in the neighborhood? What's happening at work today? And then just, it's an adventure as you go to work or you go on the job. And if nothing happens, hey, I checked in, did my duty, you know, and it's just, God, but he'll always open up little windows of opportunity to love on people. Like I said before, we can't do everything, but doing nothing is no longer an option. And I, I know you guys are active. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Richard Stearns. I don't know if you guys have ever read the book, um, you know, Richard Stearns is, yes, Hole in the Gospel. Tremendous book, you know, and he's the president of World Vision. And this is what he says about the church. He said, when historians look back in 100 years, what will they write about this nation of 340,000 churches? What will they say of the church's response to the great challenges of our time? AIDS, poverty, hunger, terrorism, water issues, war. Will they say that these authentic Christians rose up courageously and responded to the tide of human suffering and that they rushed to the front lines to comfort the afflicted and to douse the flames of hatred? Will they write of an unprecedented outpouring of generosity to meet the most urgent needs of the world's most poorest poor? Or will they speak of, and will they speak of the moral leadership and compelling vision of our leaders? Will they write that this, the beginning of the 21st century, was the church's finest hour? Or will they look back and see a church too comfortable and insulated from the pain of the rest of the world, empty of compassion and devoid of deeds? Will they write about a people who stood by and watched while 100 million people died of AIDS and 50 million children were orphaned? Of Christians who lived in luxury and self-indulgence while millions died for lack of food and water? Will school children read and discuss about a church that had the wealth to build great sanctuaries but, tackled the will, but lacked the will rather to build schools, hospitals, and clinics? In short, will we be remembered as a church with a gaping hole in this gospel? That's not to drop a guilt bomb on anything, but that's a good wake-up call for us. I mean, what do we want to be known for? What does a church, what does PVC want to be known for? And I know you guys are moving in that right direction. I know that's your heart. So I want to just encourage you, be imitators of God. Get filled up with the love of God. Man, worship your hearts out. Get filled with the Spirit. And then go out and give it away. And watch what God will do in your neighborhood, in your family, amongst your children, amongst your workplace, and your city. And God will take you to the nations. And whatever you've got, God will give it. God will use God as you bless that. He'll bless that rather and give it back to you. And my prayer for the church here is that you would continue 
I love the fact that you're meeting here at, in the back of, in this place. You don't have a big sanctuary. You got this room back here. You, you want to spend your money in the right places. You want to spend it for the poor. You want to spend it in, for the city. You want to spend it and meet the needs of others. I applaud you guys. I'm proud of you. Keep it up and keep loving people and live a life of love, even as Jesus loved us and laid his life down for us.